Hello, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Project Next, the podcast that explores the future of technology in marketing and communications. I'm your host, Brian Martin. Today, we're talking about alternate realities, artificial reality, virtual reality, some like to call it mixed reality. Anything that changes your sense of reality is on the table in this episode. There are few people who are smarter or more accomplished in this space than Ben Casey. Welcome, Ben. Hello, Brian. Ben, you are the CEO of SpinFX Group, a creative studio, digital agency, and production company all rolled into one. SpinFX comes up with bold ideas and brings them to life in exciting ways. I'd like to add that SpinFX is part of the Project Worldwide Network, which thrills me because the company is an endless source of wow for all of us at Project. Thank you for joining us today, Ben. Thanks, Brian. Ben, you do a lot of work for brands in the automotive industry. Big experiences at auto shows, large dealer gatherings, all very exciting projects. You did something for Nissan Rogue last year that was seen by the Lucas Industrial Light and Magic people, and they were really excited about it. Tell us about that. Well, it's one of those uh, interesting ones where uh, Nissan as a brand got into a sponsorship partnership with Lucasfilms around the launch of the Rogue One movie coming out. And they were looking for ways to leverage that sort of pretty significant investment in that sort of tie up with the Star Wars brand. And they put it out generally to all of their agencies uh, to come back with ideas that would help them, you know, take full advantage of that opportunity. And what was interesting was everyone came back with ideas that really kind of probably sort of erred a little bit more towards the Star Wars brand, more so than the Nissan brand. And the idea we came back with was the idea of putting the Nissan right in the heart of one of the big battles of the actual film itself. After coming up with the creative, one of the challenges was, was how do we bring it to life? Because, you know, obviously in leveraging the sort of, you know, the incredibly iconic IP of, of Star Wars, they're very protective over it and they won't just hand it out to sort of any agency to do as they please. So it initially looked like the idea was going to be killed on the basis that, you know, Industrial Light Magic and Lucasfilm and Disney operate at a much higher spend rate per second on this content than a company like ours would. And they were unwilling to let us, you know, sort of handle their property. So we actually, we put them to the challenge and said, look, you know, why don't you test us on our ability to get this done? Because we wanted to create this kind of experiential wrapper for this launch experience and, you know, ultimately they came and visited us in the studio here in, in L.A. And they gave us a couple of animation tests using their IP and we passed those and, and actually in the nice. process became an approved vendor to ILM. And, you know, ultimately what that enabled us to do is take full control and, you know, really be able to take all of the ingredients that were required to deliver that experience, you know, into our hands, which is a pretty unusual situation. And that was used for an auto show. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love most about this project is that we've been delivering launches for automakers, you know, sort of inside convention centers for the last 10 years. And, you know, for us, you know, when you bring people into a room and you turn off the lights and you, you set up a, a countdown on screen, everybody expects, you know, a Hollywood quality experience. And the conditions of a convention center where you've got brands standing side by side usually means that you have to really kind of curtail your dramatic ambition because you're dealing with, you know, kind of a fairly standard setup. And so over the years, we've always felt that we really needed to take up the drama level of these experiences and deliver on the expectation that audiences have when they're standing there in the dark. So in this case, we were able to really take it to a whole nother level. And that was recognized by Disney and the folks that were there from Lucas. Cool. It was a fun experience as a viewer to watch what was happening in that moment. 
yeah, no, it was one of those things that allowed us to sort of bring all of the ingredients that we've been playing with over the last few years around the work that we do in, you know, major public events like the Olympic ceremonies, where we're using a lot of kind of live choreographed elements, whether they be sort of people on, on the field or elements and props that are being moved around. And we're usually sort of choreographing content that reacts to that sort of live action that's happening in the stadium. And so having had all those experiences of doing it sort of in a live setting at a very large scale, taking a lot of those kind of techniques and bringing them into this kind of audio show environment. And really the thing that we wanted to do in this was make sure that the car, which was sitting on a, you know, relatively sort of static environment, it had a turntable and that's really sort of the main element we had to use. But we wanted to make sure that, you know, through the use of pyrotechnics and other kind of practical effects, and obviously this enormous screen that wrapped around the vehicle, we could actually, you know, really bring one of the scenes of the movie into that convention center. So it's interesting because you're changing people's sense of reality without a headset in that sense, because it was all visual and right in front of you. You work with so many car brands as part of George P. Johnson. Honda was one where you then started working with AR. So you gave people HoloLens uh, headsets and took them through the inside of the car. Tell us how that came to life. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because when you look at the sort of like the experiences we've had leading up to this moment as these kind of immersive technologies come into into our purview and they're very much designed around an individual experience. You know, the, the work that we did with Nissan as an example, I sort of see that as almost being sort of a like a, it's using a lot of the same techniques we use for AR experiences, but deployed in the physical world, right? So we, we're sort of like amplifying each of those and allowing it to be a mass experience. But, you know, in terms of the way that we track the car, uh, the way that we unpack the content of the product or the experience around that vehicle is, is really just using the same techniques in the studio. So, you know, in many ways, we feel like we've been doing these kind of immersive AR and VR experiences at a much grander scale, you know, we, we have we have very good training for the time that's upon us now. In the case of Honda, less from an entertainment perspective, but much more from a product education standpoint. So what we're able to do is take the best selling tool itself, which is actually the product, and make that the protagonist of the story we wanted to tell. Clearly these days, a lot of the differentiating features of a vehicle of invisible to the naked eye, right? It's a lot of technology that's sort of hidden under the sheet metal. So, you know, using the HoloLens, which we rebranded as a Honda lens for their experience, we were able to really kind of like give consumers a real kind of good picture of, of what it was that made these cars special and all the technologies that would lead to a better driving experience, both now and, and all the way down the pipeline towards autonomy. And that was fascinating because that was a, a single experience for each user. Yeah, we, we basically set it up as a 10-person experience, but what they did is they moved around the vehicle in a choreographed manner. So, you know, uh, they were each at a different point of the experience. Some, some of the experiences were inside the vehicle and some of them were around the vehicle looking at the car from the exterior. So we could keep a constant run and throughput of these 10 individuals, but they were just kind of like moving around this kind of uh, almost like a board game where we basically used this approach of, you know, placing the content in and around the vehicle. So as people sort of got into the right sort of sweet spots, they were able to really kind of understand, you know, how that, you know, kind of element of the story and the, and the unique selling uh, position of the technology uh, was able to deliver a driver benefit. And now you don't just work with the automotive industry. You do things with other brands, including Elton John, whose tour came through New York City. And I had a chance to go see that show, which was amazing. And I remembered back to what you did with the announcement of that show. 
Tell us how you got that assignment and how you worked at multiple levels to make that a really impactful launch announcement. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a great opportunity and one that, to a great extent, we created ourselves. Uh, we we had been aware for a little while of this new clause that was coming up in Hollywood contracts around this idea of post-biological performances. Hmm. And it's really coming off the back of actors like Paul Walker and Carrie Fisher who have been essential to the continuity of these large tentpole franchises. And they've used the likeness of, in those cases, the deceased actors. But also we're seeing a lot of young actors going in and doing their photogrammetry on the basis that if they get a role at an older age, that they would have an advantage because they would have multi-age uh, scans of their body so that they could play a younger character. Wow. Um, so, you know, this was really fascinating to us that they were thinking about how they could effectively sort of create movie properties in the future that were using kind of the likeness of actors that exist today. It's a little spooky. And, you know, as we got down to, you know, to discussing it internally in here in the studio, one of the first places we went to was the idea of being able to relive iconic music performances because we felt like in the music sphere, there's something very additive to the ability of being able to go back and seeing those kind of seminal performances. So at the time we were thinking like you 2 at Slade Castle after uh, Bono's father had passed away, that was a very almost a religious experience mm. uh, by the council people that were there. You know, the Beatles at Shea Stadium. And then one of the ones that popped up was Elton John at Dodger Stadium uh, back in 1975. Huge. Yeah, so we started to think about it and think about how you know, there was quite a lot of musicians in that sort of sort of the heritage rock bands of uh, the 70s who were sort of starting to think about their legacy and put on experiences like David Bowie and uh, Pink Floyd did it with Mortal Remains um, and obviously the Rolling Stones. And so we thought about uh, Ulton being in the same sort of boat. And so we actually contacted Rocket Proactively, who is his uh, management company, and we asked them while they were out for the uh, Oscars they put on the AIDS Foundation party every year. Um, if they wouldn't mind coming down to the studio because we were boiling up some interesting concepts that they might want to have a look at. So we invited them down here to our, our Spin Effect studio here in LA. And we're very fortunate that they took us up on, on that offer. <laughs> and we had the opportunity to have them actually here in this room and share with them a whole host of concepts that were sort of very um, generic. You know, they weren't really targeted around one specific um, moment in time or, or opportunity. It was much more from the perspective of, in order for Elton's legacy to live on, and in order for his music to live on, there's a whole host of technologies now that exist to be able to translate that into the formats of the future. So, you know, where if you think about, you know, the line in history between photography and film, you know, the cultural impact of people that existed in the film era was significantly more because it's, there's just more to it, right? So yeah. um, we really see this kind of shift from people that are sort of captured within the frame in a, in a 2D capacity to this kind of more immersive formats where they can be kind of, you know, that visual can be released out into the world around us as being another major line in history that will sort of separate people that were caught in one format and ultimately able to be sort of uh, have the data to be able to have a, an impact in formats that will inevitably come uh, in the volumetric sense. That's a big transition and, and a bold move for somebody at Elton's age to go and embrace something like that when his whole career has been... 2D formats. Yeah, and, and I think what's interesting about Elton in particular was that his focus is really about that he wants his music to live on and he, he wants people, new generation of fans, to be impacted emotionally by that music. And that's really what he strived for as a performer. 
and you know even to this day he's sort of he's always maintained a schedule of around sort of 100 to 200 shows a year so he he clearly is really all about going out and connecting with his fans and so when we were able to show them these ideas i think he saw it more from the perspective of enabling his songs to live on and enabling him to leverage technologies that would get a new generation of fans and have that emotional impact because you know that uh, his lifelong fans today have connected with him through his concerts and and I think the next generation of fans you know ultimately will will have to form that connection through his content so for him the idea of taking the leap and going to the you know the latest generation of content capture you know again it's it's classic elton i mean he always has this ability to stay ahead of the curve hmm. um but it was surprising to to us how much faith he has in that process of just going with his instinct so he jumped right on it when you made that presentation yep i mean literally in the room they started brainstorming ideas for his farewell tour launch because they saw that as a great moment because it would give the next generation of fans the opportunity to see him live for the last time and so really a lot of their focus was let's make sure that we generate an experience that not only sort of captures the loyal fans that you know might buy the tickets anyway um but certainly make it you know sort of come up on the radar of younger audiences through sort of a more of a cross-pollinated approach in terms of the way the message was delivered so that they would become interested in going to see his concert and therefore spark the flame of interest um that might turn into a passion for his music down the path so how did you go about capturing his career where long ago there wasn't this kind of technology in order to capture him at an early age. Yeah, it was so impactful going and looking at some of the Super 8 footage and even just some of the grainy photographs that existed of his earliest concerts which were sort of the real breakthrough moments. And you know, as we were looking at them, there was so much to those moments in time um and you could really feel the importance of this kind of relatively self-conscious young you know sort of songwriter becoming you know sort of a global icon essentially as you look to this early 70s performances in particular so you know we we looked back and we were like you know there's no other way of really doing this so ultimately we set out to recreate some of those seminal moments so the process that required was to really go at it from the from the perspective of using sort of the very latest techniques and visual effects that you're seeing in a lot of films at the moment where people are sort of de-aging and reconstituting characters. So the process involved effectively going and shooting a body double in a green st- screen studio because obviously the sort of the energy of that performance of a 23-year-old is hard to capture in someone in his 70s <laughs> uh with all due respect to Sir Elton. Uh so we we actually found someone who was an impersonator but unfortunately he wasn't the right shape for the role um Elton was tiny in the in the early 70s uh so we got a nutritionist and we got him down to a Elton fighting weight that's hilarious um uh we we took him into a studio in Hollywood and used a very unusual camera rig to capture that in 360 then we went through the process of de-aging Elton so um we were very fortunate that he just completed a movie Kingsman 2 where he was required to do some stunts and as part of that experience they actually created a body scan of him um today Uh so we're able to get that 3D scan of his face and effectively we use a fairly uh old school technique of basically taking a digital sculptor and using a certain amount of algorithm for the sort of like the de-aging process but then ultimately it comes down to doing it by eye we actually recreated you know his face as he would have uh, looked in 1970 as a 23 year old and then we're able to use a sliding scale to basically sort of go through the different generations of his of his look So it was quite a hands-on process to be able to get that sort of likeness of him and then ultimately uh we went to Pinewood which is a studio in the UK right near his house in Windsor and we had him there for 
a full day of photogrammetry and he also performed as much of his catalog as he could get through in that day which was about uh 13 or 14 songs wow and you know he wore a uh body motion capture suit and we did a uh, face capture at that time so we actually captured the genetics of his performance in the highest level of sort of fidelity and integrity that we could and then effectively we just pushed all of those things together and used the magic of visual effects to sort of recreate those moments so it's a intensely complex process especially to do that in stereoscopic 360 as a vr experience um interesting part of that process is that a lot of the artists that we had that were coming from major productions like deadpool and you know sort of big hollywood uh productions were actually running into barriers they hadn't come across before in terms of how to leverage light in this sort of environment and how to manipulate the assets to the level that we needed to to make this a believable thing so it was really quite rewarding to see people that are sort of at the top of their field actually running into problems that they hadn't had to face before you know we we really know that we're on a winner if that's the case and so um it was an enormously complex experience to go through but i think the result you know when elton watched it um at his home in windsor uh, and he'd seen it for the first time just four days before we went live in new york was absolutely worth it. I mean, he he was not understanding how we were able to capture his band and how we were able to recreate those moments. So the magic of the technology totally worked. I mean, for for him to sit there and basically watch his life happen in sort of six minutes before his eyes wow. was an incredibly emotional experience for him, and he came out completely overwhelmed. That's amazing that you could capture his life for him that way and let him see it again. Yeah, it was very daunting because we knew how personal that was you know and traditionally these technologies and the rate of evolution that the content creation is at can sometimes fall short of you know sort of really getting people inside that belief system and you know i think people have a natural aversion to some of these technologies in terms of putting a headset on in the first place and it just seems a bit silly but it was really amazing that most of the people that work with him have worked with him for decades and some of them have been working with him since 1969 so there's a lot of guys in his direct circle that were looking at this that had direct eyes on the original experience and they all came out and what they were most impacted by was how much of a human experience it was even though we were using technology most of the guys of that generation hadn't really been in VR before and when they came out of it they were excited to see more because they were really <laughs> touched by how incredible it was that they could go back and relive that moment in such vivid you know reality I've seen a lot of VR and that one was unique in that it was perhaps the most advanced I'd seen up to that point Yeah I think it was very interesting to us as we were going through the process how many people even when you sort of hit an audience that sort of varied across the different demographics people had opinions about VR but not many of them had either actually experienced it firsthand when you really held them to the flame they said oh well, actually I've never really had a go and i think you know a lot of people have seen bad VR experiences like a lot of the early kind of developer kit and even the early experiences the generation of the contents such a complex task that often falls short um uh, visually or if it hasn't it's cost an enormous amount of money <laughs> to generate which kind of puts a different sort of pressure on it and i think um what was interesting is people seeing a quality experience for the first time how impacted they were by it and how eager they were to actually experience more which was which was uh very rewarding so there was two aspects to that launch announcement there was the VR experience that everybody went through the 6 minute uh retrospective of Elton's career but then you pulled off the launch announcement as a VR experience for people in New York London and LA yeah how did that come about yeah so 
you know, ultimately when this process started, when, when they're in this room and they started talking to us about the farewell tour announcement, one of the challenges they set us was that they really wanted Elton to be able to appear everywhere in the globe in a format that absolutely is lossless in terms of that performance and that ability to speak to his fans and his, and his audiences in different cities. And so we started going about it. Uh, our first direction was to look at planetariums as the consistent storytelling format. So we thought we could have audiences gather in planetariums around the world because it's, you know, ultimately once you're under the dome, there's a certain geoparity to that experience. And then to materialize Elton, whether it be physical in one location and then have, you know, sort of a virtual representation of him in the planetarium, you know, for his performance and Q&A. And I think, you know, one of the things that he really disliked the most was going in the junkets from city to city, answering the same 20 questions yeah. uh, over and over again. So the idea that they could generate an experience where he could perform, he could release his news, that that news would be picked up not just in traditional channels, where I guess his uh, loyal fans might sort of see it in sort of a, a news release, but also in formats that were native for the younger audiences that get, you know, deeply into social channels and, and points of distribution. So the real ask was, you know, how could we ultimately create a single moment uh, with Elton in New York that would send shockwaves around the world and, and be picked up by the press? And so the way that we did it was actually to generate an experience that was live in New York, but to broadcast that and live stream it in 360 VR. So audiences in London who had been viewing the headset that was seamlessly integrated into the overall experience where in New York, people lifted the headsets and they saw Elton sitting at the piano that the 23-year-old Elton had just been performing at. In the other cities, people would leave the headsets on and would then be entering a VR live stream of that experience. And we actually partnered with, uh, with Google and YouTube to be able to deliver that experience. And because it was live and because of the way that the music required us to be within milliseconds of accuracy in terms of how live that was, we're actually able to coordinate a live Q&A. So press that was sitting in the Troubadour here in LA and um, YouTube space in London, audiences around the world viewing it through YouTube or through cardboard headsets, were able to effectively ask Elton questions live and see him answer them as if they were there in the room, which was, which was a pretty uh, epic experience. And it's one of those experiences that I think seems very obvious in retrospect. And it's the sort of experience that we've been pursuing with multiple uh, brands and this sort of idea but, you know, in the inception and in the process of taking this idea to reality, we came across a huge number of barriers. Uh, a lot of people thinking that it, it was impossible to achieve in reality to the level of flawless delivery that was be required for, for a moment like this. Um, but, you know, because of the experiences we had with the moving parts of this, we were able to make it happen. Such a powerful experience for all the press in the room with Elton, but also the press on VR headsets in London and LA. And that was the only thing done to make the announcement. The reaction to it was powerful and immediate. I think for American Express, that was their best three-day sales ever of a tour announcement. The ROI on that must have been, people must have been ecstatic about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and it keeps rolling. I mean, the, the actual concerts themselves, because he's, he's, I think, about 70 or 80 shows into his farewell tour now, the ticket prices are out of control and, and they're selling out everywhere and having to add shows. And I think, look, obviously there's a massive Elton factor in this. Um, but one of the key metrics that we look at, obviously the pre-ticket sales by American Express were, were very important because that is pure earned media at that point. It's really just the, the result of the event and the fact that people were able to sort of see this thing pop up on the radar and that Elton was in the sort of the global agenda for that week. 
He sold a million tickets in that first week. Wow. His YouTube channel's got 14 million views. And so we saw enormous activity, all his social and all, his, all the sort of the channels associated with the commerce around his actual tour. But I think, you know, one of the sort of the most interesting stats was the level of engagement of the 18 to 34 year olds, which is ultimately what we were really pursuing. We knew that there was going to be a certain amount of uh, predictability around his sort of core fans. But it's this kind of new generation of fan. I think Elton has sort of been in culture every decade. And I think this this decade itself, like when you really look at what's, what he's got out there in the marketplace through his collaborations with Samsung and YouTube, he's managed to stay relevant. And so he was sort of there. We knew that the, that group were sort of aware of him and interested, but they really jumped on this. And I think you're seeing that in the demographics that they're picking up from AEG and the ticket sales. When you go to the concerts themselves, I think it's very evident. It was very important to us because we knew that, you know, there was, a, there was an absolute given that so many people would sign up to see his last show. But what's most gratifying is how many people that, you know, may have been introduced to him through this experience or that this experience really kind of consolidated their interest in stuff that he had been doing sort of around in the last decade you know, really kind of set up that opportunity for them to have this experience and then for them to take that experience and, you know, sort of pursue it further with, you know, sort of following his music. It's interesting because even my experience going to see him at Madison Square Garden, somebody I was with commented about how it was the most multi-generational concert for a 70s rock star that they had ever seen. And it was really fun to see such a broad and diverse crowd for that. Yeah, and I think, look, ultimately there's a big reason for that. I think, you know, Elton has been able to uh, show this capacity to be able to sort of shift, you know, sort of in every seven to 10 years and sort of like hit the interest of a new set of people. And that sort of shift is very instinctive. He talks about kismic and a cosmic alignment a lot. Um, and, you know, I don't think he's putting a lot of strategy into this. It just comes from his gut. And that drives an expectation, I think, we mentioned, you know, through the process, there was a lot of barriers to actually seeing this idea become a reality. In the branded space, I'm sure that those barriers may not have been overcome because, you know, the fear makes people back down from that level of innovation. True. There was multiple tech giants that were, were engaging in this that, you know, was starting to withdraw from the idea because of the level of risk involved in doing it live for the first time. And I think, you know, Elton's response and the response of his team is just naturally to turn around and say, I understand your fears, but this is Elton John. You know, we're going to have to try harder to make this happen. <laughs> and, you know, I think that sort of encouragement and that sort of willingness to take a risk that ultimately was a very, very calculated risk and that expectation you will get more out of people is, is something that we certainly felt through the process of this Elton level that caused everyone to sort of lift their game a little bit. And I think it's very exciting and it's very exciting for the projects we have in our future with him. Uh, where we, we're really just using this as a, the starting point and taking it to whole new spaces. Cool. You know, I just came back from uh, CES earlier in the year where VR was very underplayed this year. It was very quiet at CES as it relates to VR. But I just came back from South by Southwest where there was a lot more VR. And I have to say, it, it didn't feel like it was evolving all that much. There were a lot of good experiences, but technique-wise, it didn't feel as broad as where you would hope to see the space going. But you and I were talking about some things that are giving us a lot of hope in the category. Tell us of what you see as exciting coming down the pike in VR. Well, look, I think the evolution of VR is really to be able to have group experiences. And really that even though you're in complete virtual reality and you're locked off into that fully immersive digital experience, that that gets deployed inside a physical environment. So, you know, 
the reason we kind of almost collapse, you know, the three R's or, you know, have a mixed reality, however you want to put it, you know, they're really just about different relationship between the digital and the physical ingredients in that experience. And I think even with VR, the very best experiences still use a certain amount of tactile interaction with the physical environment. I think we were up in a shopping mall recently where we experienced the, the Dreamscape VR experience. Right. Which, yes, Dreamscape Immersive. It's a new concept that's only in one mall in LA so far. Yeah. So, you know, I think that experience to me, like you walk into a room, you see the room, you put on the headset and then you embark on an experience that, you know, takes you over the next sort of, you know, 12, 15 minutes where you're using props, you're interacting with one another, you're going on rides, but, you know, you know that the room doesn't, isn't delivering that experience, you know, in, in its native form. And yet you're still concerned when you're crossing a rope bridge and there's a, there's a, there's a gap in it. And I think, you know, when you see it done well, one of the things that gives me the most faith in the technology and the fact that it's worth pushing through some of these poor experiences is the fact that it really makes your brain believe, even though, you know, it defies logic that these things are there, you know. And so we're always searching for new technologies that give us that ability to sort of create illusions, you know, to sort of like deliver a sense of magic and experiences that people are having for the first time. And, you know, even when a very seasoned individual and people go through these experiences and know that there's no reality involved or no danger involved the fact that you're sort of like carefully stepping around things to me is like a bit of a sign that you know in the long term we're on a winner because it can absolutely beat the brain into a belief system that these things are real and I think once you start to harness that you've got something very powerful and it's really about sort of developing experiences and engineering experiences that use the best of both worlds you know like I think when it's only digital and you're only looking around inside that that world you know, by its nature, it's it's going to be underwhelming. But once you can start exploring that world and starting interacting with it, in elicit more of the senses, I think you've got experiences that are really quite phenomenal. And so, you know, from our perspective, we're always looking for that ability to surprise people and to also make people wonder how it was even achievable. And I think, you know, when we look at these formats, there's absolutely that capability and it's all about how you use it. So we're really excited about taking all of the ingredients that we naturally would use in an experiential design, because that's where we've been kind of focusing our digital skill sets and deploying digital experiences that happen and take and ultimately uh, get delivered in the real world. It's really about sort of playing that line. Yeah, it, it transports you. You are in that moment and what's coming at you is real <laughs> and it, it's scary, but it's a fun entertainment experience for sure. But that's, you know, that's sort of the first mainstream example. And I think as more content creators start to be able to understand how to better harness the different ingredients that build good experiences like that, you've seen even ILM, for example, have their own version of, of that experience that they did in uh, collaboration with The Void. And again, it's like when you take a property and assets like that and deliver an interactive experience that you're absolutely inside, I think, you know, most fans are going crazy about that opportunity, right, to be in the movie. So, you know, I think GDC just wrapped. There was some incredible uh, demonstrations of the the latest content creation in, in the format of Unity, which is a real-time rendering, which enables these kind of experiences that you can walk around. And I think the future is very bright because from a content perspective, it's being catered for. So we're seeing gaming worlds become much more cinematic and the interactivity that the gaming worlds and the way that we generate those environments becoming much more mainstream and viable for more content creators to get hold of. So yeah, it, it just opens the door to 
experiences that you can be a part of rather than just viewing. Now I just hope that you have clients who are brave enough to see their way through the challenges that are in front of these, because when you do that, the resulting experience is quite powerful. Well, it's interesting because the biggest hurdle to overcome in getting any client to even look at any of these kind of next generation experiences where you're going inside that world is that they hate VR. You know, most clients will start the conversation with, oh, no, I hate VR. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where it's going to take a while to, um, you know, have them go through high quality experiences that actually harness the best benefits out of VR and, and eliminate the sort of the things that are clumsy about the technologies and the things that are sort of relatively nauseous about the experience. Because, you know, ultimately, I think as you start to experience the power of such an immersive format where you can go inside of those stories and be completely immersed in that storyline, you know, there's a great opportunity for brands and we see it all over the place, you know, both with the automotive brands that we have, but certainly also with uh, technology brands who are trying to deliver a taste of what these technologies will deliver in terms of a future experience. And the most compelling way to deliver that is to basically take people to the future. And so, you know, there are a lot of proposals on the table at the moment that would really sort of uh, take it to the next level. But like I said, the hardest hurdle to overcome is just really an enormous uh, preconceived notion that, that that VR is not an enjoyable experience. So, you know, it, it may take a while. There may be a bit of a lag there. But, you know, we've seen that lag already. You know, we saw it with AR, you know, bad experiences with AR, with things that didn't lock on and complicated QR codes that you needed to sort of track that were kept on dropping out. And then after a while, you know, as, as sort of Apple got on board and other sort of big sort of uh, hardware manufacturers in integrating these AR kits, now it's become much more main mainstream and the technology is at a point where it's productive and it's actually delivering really enjoyable and, you know, quite powerful experiences. And I think when we watch technologies, you know, go through this path and AR was sort of ahead of VR by almost a decade. And now you're sort of seeing VR going through that same process of disillusionment, enlightenment to get to a productive level. So, you know, it will take time. But, you know, as we get these opportunities with the boldest brands and with individuals uh, like Elton, who are less kind of, I guess, concerned about, you know, sort of some preconception, you know, we will have the opportunity to be able to prove this out and to, you know, train ourselves to be able to deliver really amazing experiences. Well, thank you for joining us today, Ben. I can't wait to see where you go next with this. Thanks, Brian. It's always fun. And thank you for listening to this edition of Project Next. Until next time, I'm Brian Martin.